Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're talking about the Kingdom of God. And this morning, we worked on 35, 36, and 37, which are uh, kind of a repeat of earlier parts of the book of Exodus because of the fact that it's talking about the building of the tabernacle and the garments of the high priests, etc. And just real quick, the idea of building the tabernacle. Uh, the tabernacle is really rather a small little structure, a tent. Uh, it's a very stable tent. It requires poles and cables and and uh, ropes tying it together. It has layers and layers of tent fabric, uh, including ram skins and then what we call badger hides, which are not actually badger hides but beaded work that uh, is very heavy and doesn't disintegrate in the sun, doesn't flap in the wind because of the fact that it's heavy. It makes it a very substantial structure, yet a mobile structure. Now, to take it all down, pack it up into carts and move it to another location, that's a big deal. And, of course, then you have to have the Ark of the Covenant, which has to be carried uh, with these long stays, and nobody can actually touch it. And there's a whole entourage of people to make sure that it moves safely from one place to the other. And those people are supported by the free will offerings of the whole people that comes up towards the tabernacle and the high priest through a network of charity, which is the tens, hundreds, and thousands. The same tens, hundreds, and thousands also man the courts, which is what you want. You want the people that are going to reside as judges in the courts. Of course, you have your local courts, which is your local congregation. Everything should be resolved within the local congregation. Sometimes that involves people that are in multiple congregations. They can still resolve it amongst themselves by picking, you know, five men from one congregation, or six men from one congregation and six men from the other, and come up with a, a judgment based on the judgments of Moses, which are a lot of times called statutes or ordinances, but they're actually just judgments like laws of precedence in the common law, where you look back at how was a case like this decided in the past. And Moses jumpstarts them with a number of explanations, which we call the judgments of Moses, or should call, and, but a lot of people want to call them like laws, like he was passing some sort of law. If you don't have a balcony, you can get fined or something. But that's not what it is. They're saying this is how you apply in day-to-day life the basics of the Ten Commandments, which hinge on two basic things, that you have to love God, which is the source of life and creation, and you have to love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else hinges on that. The Sabbath hinges on that. Uh, Thou shalt make no covenants with them nor with their gods hinges on that. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods hinges on that. Two basic premises of loving God 
who is a specific God, a God of creation, a God of giving of life, a God of justice and mercy. And despite what a lot of people would think by reading the interpretation of the Pharisees and the interpretation of a lot of people when they're reading the Old Testament, which is why we're going through all of Exodus. We've gone through some of the prophets so that you understand that God was not creating a vengeful, hateful society that put people to death because they started a fire on the Sabbath or because they did work in the Sabbath. No, he didn't put people to death to do that. Even in the Jordan Peterson uh, Expo that we've gone over and will continue to go over and maybe videos. Uh, ben Shapiro said that uh, there's really no evidence that people were put to death. Even uh, Dennis Prager said the same thing. These are, you know, uh, fairly orthodox Jews that uh, they don't think that people were actually put to death. That is just an extreme way of saying how important this is. But actually what I believe that it was saying, and we have a page that we are constantly expanding because you find that phrase so many different places in the Old Testament, that it it didn't mean you put them to death. It's that they will put themselves to death. They will cause their death to come untimely to them because they rejected the wisdom of these ten statements. And the wisdom that is demonstrated in the judgments of Moses. That he allowed, you know, he wrote down these judgments so you have an idea how to apply the principles of the Ten Commandments. And if you if you misinterpret them and you apply them incorrectly, it may cause you to die sooner. It may cause you to make serious, serious mistakes. You know, somebody will come along and and want you to do something, and you'll do it, even though if you really understood the Bible, you'd know, well, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> we do that. But anyway, so in in 36, well, 35, we covered a little bit more extensively, but then I went into 36 to examine the headings of 36, which is every wise-hearted man is the first section I put in there. And wise-hearted man. What is a wise-hearted man? And, uh, you know, wise is chakam, hearted is leb, and man is elish, which is elif, yad, shin. And elif is the relationship of God and man, and uh, which you, you find in other words like Israel, etc. But uh, yad is the divine spark, and then Shin is the completion of that. Now, if you went to the actual text of Exodus 36, you would find that uh, they added certain letters to some of these words that expand or not necessarily redefine, but uh, define more accurately some of these different words. And and for one, the word Elif Yad Shin is also translated artisan and is not just translated as uh, man. 
But here we see it translated as man. But if we actually go to the word itself, which I actually have on our page if you're on Exodus, it is translated man over a thousand times. But it's also translated one or husband. It's translated one 210 times. Husband 69 times. And there's over 143 other translations to it. Now, if we look at the actual text to find out the way it was actually written, it is only Elif, Yad, Shin. They didn't add any extra letters. Yet, it's often translated artisan, uh, heart, uh, you know, wise-hearted. It is basically the same word, hakam, for wise, and uh, hearted, which is lamad, be it. And lamad is, you know, the works of your hands, be it is your home. So lamad, be it, you know, where your home is, there's where your heart is, so to speak. And so you see this. But they're particularly talking about uh, two guys, Bazelel and Ahoaliab which are actually do have a lot of extra letters in them. And they are the wise-hearted men who God is actually putting understanding in them. That's another word that you can see, this understanding or wisdom. They added a number of letters to this uh, word. If you, if you were to look it up as a Strong's word, you, you would see... Uh, Tav, be it, uh, Vav, Nun. And, uh, yeah, Vav, Nun. And, uh, when we look at it actually in the text, uh, of, you know, in, in the actual text that is written there, we see Vav, Tav, be it, Vav, Nun, Hey, so they added these extra letters the same as they do with the word wisdom. and But Yahweh is pretty much the same, but there are a few other words. One word that's in there is uh, Kodesh, which they translate here as sanctuary. It's also translated holy, and they add an extra hey at the beginning. So it's hey Kodesh. And service is... Uh, a word that would normally be uh, Abadah, but in this uh, Abadat. So they added a Tav onto the end of Abadah. And, but Abadah normally means labor or service. And this is very important because if you, you have to ask yourself, what are all these Levites doing? What are all the priests doing? How is that the, why do I want to join the Israelites? Because they burn up sheep together, uh, they do all these strange rituals, they wear these, you know, the priests wear these fancy outfits, they got this kind of cool little tabernacle. Uh, why do I want to follow them? Because they are a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. And most people don't get that. They don't understand that what Moses has set up is a voluntary militia, a voluntary system of courts, with a basic foundation of the Ten Commandments, and of course most people don't understand the Ten Commandments, why don't you make covenants with their gods? How do you make a covenant with their gods? 
Well, very simply, their gods are their ruling judges. The people who decide what is good and evil for you. And of course, every little city-state that they came across in Canaan and came across in these other lands that they came into, which we eventually call the Promised Land, they all had systems. They had a central reserve fund, usually, maybe in a treasury. They had a, a superior authority who was exercising power. They had systems of social welfare. Otherwise, you would just go off and, and get away from them. They had a way of protecting the people in this little uh, city-state or group. But Israel came along with this other way of doing things, to protect the people, to provide justice, and to produce a social safety net of charity rather than forced offerings. This made them peculiar to all the other city-states, which forced the offerings of the people. The people became subject. The people belong to the king, like we see in Sodom. Sodom comes. Now, Abraham is just freed all the people of Sodom from this captor who was hauling them off to their own country to use them as servants and slaves in their own country. And Abraham freed them by defeating that army overnight with his people and all the other people that he had taught how to build these altars of steps of clay and stone. And why? How how did they come together? Because they had these little altars where they burned up sheep. Well, they, that isn't what they're doing. These altars were always living men. Uh, from the Teutons on, they were living men who were the most charitable, most trusted men in the community. And they were set aside to receive the offerings of the people and tend to a daily ministration of pure religion. Uh, by pure religion mean unspotted by men who exercise authority. All the other governments had men who exercised authority. I remember the Teutons, when they had to fight the Romans, they had to muster an army of 12,000 men overnight. They had to be well organized. All the platoons, all the stuff. And yeah, they did elect uh, a guy to be their kind of commander-in-chief of this army that got together overnight. So you could say, well, take a, take a third of the guys and go this way, and take a third of the guys and go this way. But he didn't organize every platoon. He didn't organize every company of men. They were already organized that way because they were organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They weren't organized in that way because they went out and bought fatigues and all got AK-47s and they marched in the woods as if there's some kind of a militia. They were organized in that way because they took care of their daily ministration, their social safety net, the care for one another, for the widows, for the orphans, for the old people whose family fell apart or whatever and they needed help, for the people who fell off a ladder and needed help. They were self-insured through a system of charity that was religiously contributed to but voluntarily contributed to. Now think about that. How that would change your society. There would be lots of people out there who wouldn't give a dime. There would be lots of people out there who would never show up. They might want to go smoke dope all the time or or maybe they just wanted to carouse or or, or run onto uh, 
all kinds of other distractions or whatever. They might be overeating, weigh 350 pounds. They might not be taking care of their health. But they don't care about anybody else. They just care about themselves. Well, they're not a part of the system that Moses set up. Now, they might go get, you know, uh, some of the things that you would say, well, that guy is Jewish. He's, he goes to the synagogue. Once a week, he goes to the synagogue. He sits up there in the front row. Maybe he sits in the back row because he's closer to the door when it's all over. He can get out. And, you know, the quicker you get out, the quicker you get to your car, the quicker you get to your car, the quicker you can get back home and watch the game. He doesn't care about all those other people. He's just going there because it makes him feel good. Like he's done something. If he really needs help, he goes to the government. Well, this isn't what... Nobody's going to the government anymore in in Moses' kingdom because everybody is the government. They can't go to the pharaoh and say, oh, we're really short of grain now. How, help us out. No. They have to fend for themselves. And the guys who don't contribute, you know who they are pretty quick. The guys who do contribute, they can partake of the communion of the community. Because they know that they're, they actually are a part of this system of social welfare, this system of coming together to protect one another, this system of courts and justice, because they want to see justice for their neighbors, so their neighbor will be there to see justice happen for them. So this changes the whole dynamic of a community. It makes the community actually a community. When you have the LGBT community, they don't help each other out. They don't contribute to any social welfare. They have no communion amongst them. If they need bread, they go to the men who exercise authority. And they force their neighbor to contribute to their welfare through those men who exercise authority. They're not a community. They call themselves a community. But they're not. The rainbow community. I don't know. There's probably all kinds of community. Communities out there. Or people call themselves a community. But they have no communion. They don't take care of one another. They don't provide for one another. They all go to Caesar. They all go to Pharaoh. They all go to FDR. They all go to people like Cloward and Pivot. And it's destroyed the community. And, and we need to repent of that. So, anyway, in, in the text, we see Abodat with a tov on the end because it's service through faith. Because they're going to take care of one another through faith. That's the way it works. And so, anyway, we, we didn't go into all the, uh, they got all the offerings. The one thing that we did point out, they're all free will offerings, which is critical. I mean, uh, how much of your state capital, your, your national capital, how much of that was built with free will offerings? And like you've heard me tell the story, and there's probably lots of other examples. We can go back in history. When they needed ambulances during World War One. 2,000 ambulances and their drivers were bought and paid for by charitable donations, not by tax dollars. And that was World War One. Now, World War Two, that you know, people would, you know, donate to, uh, you know, uh, different groups. Was it USO or whatever it is? But uh, where they... 
that people would go and they'd serve donuts and coffee to the troops before they left. And they might even go down and volunteer in hospitals. I remember uh, there was a famous comedian, uh, Phyllis Diller. She uh, went to a veterans hospital and she entertained the people. Before she was known as Phyllis Diller, she didn't, she didn't really start her career as a comedian until I think she was in her 40s or late 30s. But she went to the, the uh, Veterans Hospital and entertained the patients. And that's where she developed her comedy timing. I mean, she was probably already a funny lady before that. But that's where she really developed her skill. And then she got her break on, I don't know, Ed Sullivan's show or something. And, you know, made a good career as a comedian. Uh, but so much of... What is provided by society? You go read an article on uh, Alexis uh, Tocqueville, Day Tocqueville. And uh, he talks about legal charity destroying society when your charity is provided by men who exercise authority. And so what we're seeing is Moses has set up a system that operates by free will offerings. And even the tabernacle is built with free will offerings. And the, a few other things that I point out in here or the word sanctuary is actually the word holy. It's sometimes translated holy. Holy means separate. Uh, it's something that is separated out and dedicated to God. It's not the private property anymore of the individual. Somebody has given it up entirely. It's a burnt offering. It's given up to a minister. That minister will take a portion and pass it up to another minister that he has for himself because they're all connected and eventually it'll get up to what was called the high priest. And it will be called a heave offering. It's what came all the way up by, you know, giving some to the next guy and some to the next guy. So it came up. People don't go up by steps, but the offering goes up by step. And we show how that same word has to do with the word steps or stairs. Because it's going up. It's heaved up. When it gets up there, the high priest waves it. Now, we think, okay, that means he has it above his head and he shakes it back to and fro. You know, except for the fact that it's, it, we're talking the equivalent of millions of dollars in value. And, and some of the things that are heaved up are, are sheep. Is he waving the sheep above? No, they, they do wave a little bit of barley grain and say, you know, this is where it's time for the wave offering. But what is he actually doing just so you can see him wave it? No, he's redistributing the extra wealth that came up to the high priests down to the other ministers throughout the nation. So everybody wants to be a good member in standing because, you know, you have flood, you have drought, you have dearth, you have difficulties. Uh, somebody attacks you if you're one of the tribes that are on the borders of Israel you may get more attacks than others everybody will come to your aid but if you you were the hardest hit they will send aid to you by way of the wave offering almost nobody explains this you can go to all kinds of rabbis oh, no no we just shake a few leaves, sheaves of barley in the air and that's our wave offering nonsense Absolute, utter nonsense. This is a practical way of taking care of the needy of an entire nation 
in a way in which you created those social bonds, read an article on social bonds, that Robert Malone talks about, that we need to repair because we're in a sick society. Why are we in a sick society? Because you have rabbis, you have priests, you have ministers out there saying it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods through the exercising authority of your governments, disregarding the fact that Moses said it wasn't right, that Jesus said it wasn't right. Paul said it was idolatry to do it that way. They have a table we should not eat of. We have a table that we can eat of. Their table, according to Proverbs, is a snare. According to David, it's a snare and a trap. But uh, according to the modern ministers, no, it's okay. It's okay to eat at their tables, even though they're the men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. Those of you who are listening for the first time, these are quotes right out of the Bible, right out of the mouth of Jesus. But you go confront somebody with that, which I should probably do. Um, Well, actually, I did do it this week. And they just... They just don't want to see it. They they think that no, it's it's perfectly okay to to do this. No, it's not okay. We should not be doing it. It's uh, it's making it's degenerating the society and it's destroying society. But we're going to try to get all the way through thirty seven, thirty eight, maybe even thirty nine. So we're going to keep going here. So. In the details wrought in the works of the tabernacle, which means ten. And when they say tabernacle of the congregation, they're talking about the individual tabernacles of the individual congregation. Because when they first started writing all this, they were all living in tents. Remember, Moses stopped writing before they even entered into the promised land. So they were still moving around in tents. And when he moved that tabernacle outside of the camp, away from the people... They had to worship from their own tabernacle, from their own tent, which there's a reason for that. Because worshiping again, aboda, service, they had to serve the whole nation from the door of their own tent. How did they do that? Now they're building this every day, stuff is coming in to build this tabernacle, rather an elaborate job, and even make the garments of the priests. And their, their donations are coming in every day, so they eventually had to restrain the people. In 36, uh, verse 6 and 7, they talk about having to say, enough, enough, we got enough, we got enough. Now, they were still going to need more, but the rest was going to be used to take care of the needy of society. And much of it never got to the tabernacle, didn't need to get to the tabernacle. As they explained this morning, the Levites were the priests of the nation. They were spread out through all of Israel. Eventually, when they came into the Promised Land, there would be Israelites, uh, Levites, in every single small town. Just like what we see by the time of Jesus Christ, about 100 years or so before, the Essenes, what we call the Essenes, were coming up. And they were taking care of the needy through faith, hope, and charity. 
and the people who followed that way were called Essenes. But a new system had come along, just like when Constantine brought his new system. And that new system had come along with uh, a number of Jezebel types and uh, and kings who wanted to exercise authority, like Hyrcanus and Aristobulus and these others, where they began to force the offerings of the people, which is a part of the strange fire that we will eventually look at and and explain. But they were supposed to take care of one another through free will offerings, not through forced offerings. And it really got underway with Herod and the Pharisees, where they instituted a system of baptism. And they wouldn't baptize you just at the laver at the temple. They would baptize you out uh, if you were in Rome and you joined up. If you were in one of the Greek city-states, you could join Herod's system of social welfare. And he actually had two of them going because he had at least two major temples that were the center of these systems. One was, of course, the temple in Jerusalem. But uh, the other one was the Temple of Roma. He also built the Temple of Roma, which probably didn't require circumcision, which brought in a whole new influx of guys. <laughs> and so, because they said, uh, I'm not going to join that one. I'll join the one that doesn't require circumcision. Anyway, I mean, you'd find circumcision amongst the Romans and a lot of people, but the reality is is that the Temple of Roma had a lot of different customs and rituals, but basically both temples were systems of social welfare. Uh, that's what all the, like I said, go all the way up to the Teutons and their subots and the, the, their priests were providing systems of social welfare to the people. But, like I said, they mustered an army overnight because they had that system already in place. And they also had a system of justice already in place based upon the same networking scheme of tens, hundreds, and thousands. But when they needed to fight the Roman army, because I think there was like 15,000 Roman centurions coming, large number. And so they mustered 12,000 of their own soldiers and they attacked them and they defeated the Romans to a man. In order to do that, uh, was it Artemis? Um, Herman, he's given the name Herman. I call him Herman the German. Uh, he had been an exchange student with Rome. He was educated in Rome. He was the son of a high up individual amongst the Teutons, but they exchanged where somebody from Rome came and learned the ways of the Teutons, and somebody from the Teutons went and learned the ways of the Rome. Well, when he came back, and saw the he came back with the Romans, and the Romans were marching in to establish order. There were probably renegades around that were raising havoc, which gave the Romans an excuse to go up there and bring law and order to to that community. And uh, he switched sides overnight, and he got the people to muster this army, and he attacked the Romans, and he knew their tactics, and so he could organize the people. And they defeated the Romans down to the last man. Nobody made it back. And they they did not get all the gold and treasure of the Romans, which they wanted to get, you know, all the extra swords. I mean, that's a huge value. 15,000 soldiers, you're going to get lots of spears, lots of 
shields, lots of swords, lots of knives and daggers and buckles and all this huge, you know, it's it's like Black Friday. You just go in and pick it all up. But they couldn't go in and pick it all up because the original tactic, which was a Roman tactic, attack on three sides and flank them on two sides and, and have a head-on attack. But one side you leave unguarded so that the Ger- Germans coming ferociously with their axes and their heavy wood shields and everything, Romans started running out the back door and escaping. So you gave them a way to escape. They didn't have to fight to the last man. So somebody quit. Somebody else quit. Before you know, a whole large, large number of people are running off to get away. And then it's a rout. And they... But they ran into what was called the bogs. Now, most of those bogs now have all been drained and turned into farmland up in Germany. But back then, you try to make it across those bogs, you might not make it. There's a lot of sinkholes and quicksands and boggy areas. And and you're running for your life and you're disorganized. And, and guys can hunt you down and pick you off one by one. And they got a lot of stuff. But a lot of the stuff ended up at the bottom of bogs just disappeared. And nobody knows what happened to it. But the the soldiers didn't make it back and they lost a lot of the loot. And uh, But they won. They won the battle. And it was a long time before anybody came back up to fight the Teutons. But they did. They eventually massed an army together, went up there to fight. And the Teutons now, under the same general, Hermann the German, he changed his tactics. He didn't want to lose all that treasure. And so he changed his tactics to surround them all sides so they couldn't escape. Well, of course, they're going to fight harder because it's life or death. You fight to the last man and nobody runs because there's no place to run anyway. And so a lot of Germans died. There were huge casualties. They basically won that battle too, but at a huge cost. Now, but Herman was a lot wealthier. Because he got the excess, the treasures and all that stuff. And he had gotten his cronies to support him. And so he tried to set himself up as a permanent commander-in-chief of the Teutons. Now, emperor means commander-in-chief. Imperator means commander-in-chief. and Because he's the head of the army. That's what the word means, emperor. I mean... Augustus Caesar had lots of titles. Apotheos, head of the courts. Imperator, head of the army. Son of God, that was another one of them. Son of God, that's, he's in charge of the social welfare system of Rome. He also minted coin at the Temple of Mineta. He, lots of things he was doing in order to bind the people together. But he was binding the people together under a central authority. He was... He was creating a social welfare system at the expense of somebody else. At first, it was not the Teutons. At first, he was doing it at the expense of the Gauls, started under Julius Caesar. But then other places where he conquered, he took a treasure, and that treasure promoted the welfare of Rome. And, of course, that degenerated the people. But anyway, back to Hermann the German... So he was going to set himself up as an emperor, had a lot of support from guys who would be his second-in-command, so to speak, his entourage and everything. 
his own family got together with a bunch of Teutons and went and killed Herman the German. Put his head on a spike and stuck it up and said, it is not that we do not want a Roman emperor or ruler. We don't want a ruler because they had an idea of a system of government where every man was king in his own castle and they came together bound by the social bonds of common good, common welfare and care for one another. And that's what united them. That's really what made them strong as well as the hard life that they had to live. They lived a good life. But one of the things that Tacitus said when he came to see the Teutons was uh, they all are working. (laughs) They're all are working. And see, when you have, right now in America, we have a tremendous problem finding workers. Because just in a couple of years of everybody getting all kinds of unemployment and all kinds of benefits from the government and food stamps. Now, we've been getting them for a long time, but they upped it for just a couple of years, and now we can't get people to work. We don't have people with a good work ethic. This is all because you haven't been doing what Christ said for almost a 100 years in America, right under the noses of the modern church. You haven't been doing it. You haven't been taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. You've been taking care of one another through men who exercise authority one over the other and take away from your neighbor to provide you with social welfare, to take care of your parents, to provide you with education for your kids. You force your neighbors to contribute. Fire departments, everything. You want to force your neighbor and you think that's the way we should do it. But Christ said not to do it that way. Because that's covetous. You're, you're desiring a really nice fire department. You're going to make your neighbor through Minoex. You're not going to do it. You're not going to go to your neighbor's house and say, have to contribute. Because it's a good cause. But if you don't contribute, we're going to take your house away and give it to somebody else. What's that? That's not Christian. You can tell me you're Christian, but I'm looking at what you're doing. Because that's what James said. That's what Paul said. That's what Jesus said. Not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who actually do the will of the Father. When did it become the will of the Father that you exercise authority? Gomez, uh, who, you know, I'll eventually do a program on that. I'm not quite ready. I'm still going over my notes. I may post a couple more times to see what reaction I get out of him. But ultimately, he got down to the fact that, no, Constantine, the Christians followed Constantine because... That's what we should do is is follow Constantine. Constantine started his own church. Most of the Christians did not. All the bishops that he commanded to come, a tiny minority of them actually came to the Council of Milan. They wouldn't come. They wouldn't have anything to do with him. And less than half of the people that came the first time came the second time. Yet we know we had thousands and thousands and thousands of more people calling themselves Christians. They were getting baptized and they were calling themselves Christians. But they weren't repenting. Because the church that they were joining was the church of Constantine. And it says, right, we have the records that Constantine 
provided for this new church with millions and millions and millions of dollars in gold and, well, not so much gold, but silver and land and buildings. He, he supplied all those things. And he got them from other people he killed. And that's what he was contributing to this new church. The new church that Constantine was creating was a city, a polis of blood. Now, it wasn't quite as socialistic as it was. So, this is more like democratic socialism. <laughs> well, I don't know how democratic it was. But that's what everybody says. Well, we're not socialism. Not like Venezuela and Russia and all. But socialism, democratic socialism. No. No. Socialism, if, if you got your hand in somebody else's pocket, you ain't a Christian. You're a thief. If you get somebody else to put their hand in somebody else's pocket for your benefit, you're covetous. That's a covetous practice. And if you look to rulers, governments of the Gentiles, who exercise authority one over the other and say, will you put your hand in my neighbor's pocket and get the money out so that I can have free education and pay off my student loans and and take care of my parents. I don't want to take care of my parents. I don't I don't want to do any more ought for my parents. They're kind of a drag. I want you to take care of my parents. I want the government to do it. If you need any money to do it, just go to my neighbor and take it from him. That's pretty much what you're doing. Now, I admit that that just attacks your delusion. You're going to say, oh my gosh, what are we doing? You know, or you're going to say, that's crazy. That can't be true. If that's true, all my time in church on Sunday is a waste of time. Yep, yep, it's a waste of time. <laughs> it may not be a waste of time. You might pick up something there. Who knows? You know, you, I, it's kind of like, if you want to learn to swim, you're going to have to take the life vest off eventually. You, you can't really learn to be a good swimmer if you got this big May West life vest on all the time. You You have to take the flotation device off so that you can you can learn to actually swim. And some of you have needed, you know, go to Bible studies and, you know, go to church and uh, and hear what the pastors have to say because, you know, they are reading from the Bible. There's a lot of good stuff in there. But if you're going to follow Christ, you actually have to do what he said to do and you have to stop doing what he said not to do. And going to men who exercise authority one over the other, you're not to do. Coveting your neighbor's goods to the men that exercise authority, you're not to do. So there's lots of things you're not to do. And there are a lot, you're supposed to be practicing pure religion, which is a daily ministration, unspotted by the world, the, the constitutional orders and systems of government. So this is what he's setting up. This is actually, we've gone through it up here now, now in building the tabernacle, he is spelling out in total symbols exactly the structure of the individual mankind. You know, covered in skins, red skins of, you know, the rams. And there's a reason why the rams and not the ewes. And there's a reason why they're red and not 
blue. And there's a reason for that. We went over that a little bit. Why blue thread? And we could go into the purple and and, and the other color, linen, etc. Why these different colors? Why, you know, the purple and the scarlet and twined linen? Why are they doing that? Well, same, you know, you can go look at our our article on fringe and our article on breeches. And you will see that there's a reason why they do all this. So, anyway, in 37, we'll jump right to 37. Let's see how far are we along. We're almost an hour in. Uh, so, we can go right to 37. We've pretty much squeezed as much as we could out of 36 right now. Like I said, we could go in a lot deeper into all the individual symbolism of it. But you're not going to get it. You're not going to understand it unless you understand the basics. So we covered the basics. But now you got this Bezalel made the Ark of Shittim wood. Two cubits and a half was the length of it. And a cubit and a half the breadth of it. And a cubit and a half the height of it. So he's giving you these sizes. And that's, there's a ratio mixed into there. And there's always a reason for it. I mean, Moses was so precise in so many things. You know, the, you know, when he talks about uh, on the sides, there's two rings and everything. Now there's a practical reason for all this. And, and what the mercy seat is. I mean, we could do a whole show, two, three shows on what the mercy seat is. Why the cherubs. But I'm not going to tell you why all these things are constructed. I'm going to give you a hint now and then. And we have in previous shows. But, you know, it's not going to do you any good unless you're actually drawing nearer to God. So, anyway, they talk about making the tables. They, they use pure uh, gold and a crown of gold round about it. And they talk about all this stuff. And again, shit and wood and, and these structures. And then the lamp stands which is going to be a source of light inside this tabernacle. And there's a reason for that. And there's a reason for its design and everything. And these bowls that are shaped like almonds and everything. But then they make the altar of incense way down there in verse 25. And he made the incense altar of Shittim wood. The length of it was a cubit. Only a cubit. And the breadth of it. Only a cubit. That's not very big. It was four square. Two cubits was its height. So it's actually kind of high. Two cubits is height. And it has horns. Now, the, the same word for horns can be rays of light. It can be, uh, you know, you can picture a horn like a cow's horn or a bull's horn or ram's horn or something like that. But some sort of horn. We don't have any clear pictures of it. So, you know, you're, you can, it can get, get run away with your imagination on this. But the thing is, the horns are representing something. And, and they, unto it, a crown of gold round about it. And he made two rings of gold for it under the crown thereof by the two corners of it. Upon two sides thereof to be places for the staves to bear it withal. So they can still pick it up. Now I don't know if it carried the electrical charge that the ark seems to have carried. 
but it was made of th- these uh, materials that could absorb electricity, although casey wood would be an insulator. But he says, and he made the staves of shittim wood and overlaid them with gold. So they were overlaid with gold, and he made the holy anointing oil and the pure incense of sweet spices according to the work of an apothecary. So, why is that? And, you know, so they had this word mercy seat show up numerous times. What is the mercy seat? Why do they call it the mercy seat? What is the actual Hebrew of it? Well, I probably should just dedicate a whole page to that. I just haven't had the time. But, what is the meaning of incense? There is a whole page on incense, and I'm sure I could expand that into greater and greater depth. But, because uh, a lot of these things, I, I, I'm inspired to write them. I write them real quick, and then I can't get back to them because I go, go on to other things. But, there's enough of it there right now that that if you are actually drawing near Lord, the Lord by doing what the Lord, He can be writing upon your heart and your minds. So that you become the wise man who God is putting the wisdom into. But I, I'll give you a couple. Of, incense is something that supposedly smells good. It certainly smells. And it it is like in the ether. I mean, you don't even have to see smoke and you can smell like, what is that I smell? You know, is that barbecue? <laughs> you You don't have to see it. Nobody has to say that somebody's making barbecue. You just smell it, you know. But you don't see how the smell gets to you necessarily. So it's kind of almost spiritual in its nature. But an interesting thing, and I put this footnote in just today. Why were the Romans, the Roman citizen, the head of a household, was required to burn incense to Augustus Caesar at the temple every year, once a year, and had to be recorded. So that they had their, their guys who would record these things. Just as, you know, I mean, the book of Numbers is about an accounting of things. It's about things recorded. That's that's why they call it the book of Numbers. And, of course, you have your scribes, which are accountants. They account for some things. And, of course, if you're going to have heave offerings going up and then wave offerings coming back down to the people, there's an accounting there. Everybody knows how much. You know, the ministers know how much they gave. They, they're in contact with each other. And they know how much went up. And then when they have to do this in public, wave. You know, I'm going to send this much there and this much there and this much there. And redistribute that wealth around the country where it's needed. Because you don't want it in a central treasury. Because if it's in a central treasury, you just have to kill the guards. And you can take the central treasury off. And this is one of the reasons why the Teutons were undefeatable. And uh, the, the last Roman general, I wouldn't say the last Roman general, but one of the most famous Roman generals, uh, they actually named him Germanicus. <laughs> he went to fight them. And he's, he was asked, you know, like they were fighting so tenaciously. And, of course, they were not organized from the top down. They were organized from the bottom up. 
And he realized that you couldn't just kill the leader and stop. I mean, they killed Hermann the German themselves. Because they didn't want a leader ruling over them. Because they knew that what made them strong was they were bottom up. They were a free, virtually free society. And he said, kill them all. You had to kill them all. Uh, because they won't stop unless you kill them all. You can't just kill their leader. And so, anyway, that that's an important concept to realize that when you're ground up and you go read the Band of Brothers or, or watch the the miniseries on the Band of Brothers, they they were a band of brothers because they shared everything. They they endured everything together. And this created those social bonds that made them the strong unit that they were. We need to have the whole nation that way. Unfortunately, we don't. And by the time we do, half the nation will be gone. But that's another story. We don't want to, we don't want to scare you towards righteousness. We want you to go towards righteousness because you love God. But it is true, Augustus Caesar was called the Son of God and they had to burn incense to him as the Son of God in the temple annually. Go read our article, Son of God. Jesus was also called the Son of God and people could burn incense to him. They could contribute to him, but they did it by taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And there was a Corbin of the Pharisees, and there was a Corbin of Christ. You can go look up those two articles, Corbin and Corbin of Christ, and find out what that means. But this is what Moses is setting up in this tabernacle. So your little tiny cubit by cubit table of incense has nothing to do with the other 500,000 half million Israelites out there. They're not ever even going to see it, probably. They might get to see it once in their lifetime. So what, what, is that what binds them together? Someone inside the tents burning incense. I, I can smell some incense. No, it's symbolic. It's symbolic. <laughs> Pay attention. So anyway, and they, like I said, they make the lampstands and the incense. But, oh, probably should, the word sweet, altar of incense, where they burn sweet incense, is associated with the, the word translated Peaceable. So sweet incense is peaceable incense. So how is that? Is the incense that the Romans are burning to Augustus as the son of God of the Roman Empire, is that peaceable incense? Is that sweet incense? No. Because they have to do it. They could be punished if they don't do it. It's a forced burning of incense. So therefore it's not sweet. It's it's not a sweet. You know, go back to Cain and Abel. Abel is a herder of sheep and I've explained this. You don't force sheep. If you try to push sheep in this direction, they're going to want to go in the other. <laughs> they're going to give you a hard time. But if you're going to plow the Adama, the clay, from which Adam and Eve came, when Cain and Abel were the red clay, but they're plowing the clay to produce the fruit. That's not peaceable. 
If you watch a plow, a plow forces everything. It's plowing. Those are symbolic stories of what was going on at the time. But that's enough heresy for this chapter. So we can go on to another chapter. Um, Exodus 38. So what are the headings in Exodus 38? Burnt offering, the laver and the quartz, pillars, tabernacle of testimony, the gold and the silver and the brass. So in the burnt offering, and he made the altar a burnt offering. And let's see, did I... Uh, I have a page on burnt offering, which appears quite a few times in the Bible. I mean, you can go look it up yourself. That burnt offerings, the translation of it, to do it. So that you can go right there and right away you can see. Because it's a pretty long page and it's built over the years. We just kept adding to it. Then there's sin offerings, there's burnt offerings, there's all kinds. Like I said, I'm going to have to do a whole show. Sin offerings, free will offerings, drink offerings. All the offerings are free will offerings. There are no forced offerings. There is that half shekel that you're supposed to pay to say that I'm in the game. But that's by families, the men, heads of families. Because if you're, if you don't have your own family, you're in another family. Because it's the families that are the institution of a free government. Which is why the socialists and the communists and everything, they want to break down the family and nothing breaks down the family more than legal charity. By creating a system where you, you can actually get more money from the government if you break up your family. <laughs> Send the man a pack and at least divorce him. He can come over and stay at night as long as they don't know. I remember a real estate person uh, that I've known since they were this high <laughs> uh, was going to sell a bunch of HUD properties. Uh, housing um, HUD, uh, whatever that stands for. They were going to sell them and then they were going to take the money and contributed to building low-income housing. And so they were going around looking at all the places where they were already paying the rent for these people who live in the houses. And it was just one woman after another with multiple children, obviously many of them by different uh, husbands. And she pulls up into one of the driveways. It's like noon. And there's a big boat and a big suburban-like RV recreational vehicle. Uh, and they're in the driveway. And she's saying, well, so why, why is this in the driveway at a HUD house where you're paying the rent? And the guy from HUD says, it's probably her boyfriend. Best you don't mention it. So if her boyfriend is living there, buying big boats and big expensive new vehicles and everything. He's living there rent free. He's shacking up with her rent free. Because you're paying her rent. Now if I was a Levite in charge of the social welfare of this woman who had multiple children by multiple husbands like the woman at the well I would say you need to get your act together. I ain't paying the rent of this house anymore. As long as he's living here. If you're really down on your luck, 
you're that's one thing, but you're not down on your luck. You're just stupid. <laughs> you're selfish. And you're shacking up with another guy after guy after guy after guy getting kids and making a living off of those kids because you're getting a government check for everyone that you just keep punching out. And we know, we know, statistically speaking, it's not a guarantee, but statistically speaking, if a child is raised without a man in the house, I guess there is kind of a man in the house, but I wouldn't call him much of a man, uh, he's more likely to run and have trouble with the law. He's more likely to have emotional uh, difficulties. He's more, along, uh, more likely to have a broken marriage himself. Just on and on. It's a bad deal. More likely to drop out of school. Statistically speaking, that's a guarantee. And an interesting statistic that I just recently heard is that that pattern follows and is only reversed when the male member of the family has custody of the children. If the male member of the family has custody of the children, less likely to have run-ins with the law, less likely to drop out, less likely to have emotional problems, and more likely to have a continuous relationship when they become of age. But if it's only the woman and with no male influence, it's a bad recipe. If it's only the man, it will come out. Now, I will admit that if only the man is raising the child, that child is missing something too. It won't come out in confrontations with the law and and likely to go to jail and all these kinds of things. But it will come out some other way. But the reality is is that if the husbands aren't moral and aren't uh, taking the proper position, it's, it's bad for every generation. And there's nothing you can do about it. So anyway, there's burnt offerings, uh, gain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, purification offerings, reparation offerings. Uh, there, you got reparations. Yeah, I just saw them talking about reparations. Reparations for the black community would be devastating. It would be putting another nail in the coffin of the black community. So, but the burnt offerings basically are what is given up entirely to support the social welfare system of the nation, which would also be the the emergency network of the nation. If there was war, you know, if there was, um, you know, uh, famine, if there was disease, if there was floods, if there were fires, if there was any kind of calamity, earthquakes. Those funds that could move through the whole body of the nation quickly because everybody's well connected would be there. If you did not participate on a regular basis, on a daily basis in that network based on tens, hundreds, and thousands, you might be shut out like the 3,000 at the camp of the Golden Calf. And so we have to understand that. So... Anyway, back to uh, 38. So, he made an altar of burnt offerings of shittim wood. Five cubits was the length thereof, and five cubits the breadth thereof. But it's made out of wood. (laughs) It was four square and three cubits 
in height. So this is three cubits in height. Remember, it's two cubits. Now it's three cubits. It was less before. And he made the horns thereof on the four corners of it. And the horns thereof were the same. And he overlaid it with brass. So it's overlaid with brass. But still that brass is going to get hot if they're burning stuff on it. But again, horns has to do with shine. It can actually have to do with making music. It can have to do with rays of light coming out. Horns of light they talk about. So it, again, it's symbolic. And really, if you're talking 600,000 people, even at the size of 5 cubits by 5 cubits, it's insignificant. It's insignificant. Especially for a daily sacrifice. So what is it really symbolizing? What are they really, what is he really telling? If everybody thinks, oh, we gotta build this, we gotta build the tabernacle, you know, we gotta have the feast of booze and all this stuff. If you don't, if you're not creating a social welfare system, if you're still plugged into the cities of blood where you are dependent upon men who exercise authority for your social welfare, you got nothing with your feast of tabernacles. And he goes on, verse three, and he made all the vessels of the altar, the pots and the shovels and the basins and the flesh hooks and the fire pans, all vessels thereof made he of brass. So these are two things that talk about of brass. These burnt offerings are of brass. They're not gold. They're of brass. And he made for the altar a brazen grate of network under the compass thereof beneath Unto the midst of it. And he cast four rings for the four ends of the grate of brass. And he placed for the staves. And he made the staves of shittim wood. Overlaid them with brass. And he put the staves into the rings on the side of the altar to bear it withal. Now... This is a big altar, so it's going to be heavy. He made the altar hollow with boards. And we might look at that, uh, you know, don't, you'll go out and try to build this based on that translation. You're going to, going to have problems. But it was hollow. Otherwise, at that size, it would have been very heavy to pick up. And he made the laver brass and the foot of it of brass and the looking glasses of the women assembling, which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Looking glasses. We could look into that too. I didn't put any notes down for that yet. He made the court on the south side, southward, and hanging of the court were a fine twined linen. A hundred cubits. Their pillars were twenty, and their brazen sockets Twenty, the hook of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. So now we got a little different material, silver. And there's a reason for all this. But you have to understand what are the pillars representing? What are the curtains representing? What are the threads representing? Why blue? Why purple? Why are these different colors? And like I said, I touched on that, but I'm just not going to go into it in great detail. But they talk about the pillars down there in verse 17 and the sockets of the pillars, which were of brass, etc. But the flats of silver. So they're mixing all this, these different items together. And again, if you, if you studied and studied and studied this 
explanation, you probably could not build exactly what they were doing. But it's written down here so that you have some kind of connection and understanding. So it says, as it was accounted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites. So this is the sum of the tabernacle. That's what he's talking about. And that this tabernacle of testimony. That's probably the most key verse there. The tabernacle and its construction is a testimony about how humanity fits in to this plan of God. Deep down to your very soul. That you're to have these altars in yourself. And if you were actually doing what Christ said, there would be radiant light coming out from you. That would both protect you and heal those people around you. But you, it's not going to happen overnight. Chances are it's not going to happen. I mean, it just happened just a touch with Paul knocked him off his high horse. So, can you imagine what it would be like for you? <laughs> so, anyway, uh, he goes on and he's talking about this tabernacle of the t- t- testimony, the engravers and the cunning workmen and the embroiderers in blue and in purple and in scarlet and fine linen. So, all this is a part of this message. All the gold that was occupied for the work and all the work of the holy place, even the gold of the offering, was twenty and nine talents of seven hundred and thirty shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary. And so he's talking about all the funds needed to create this, this mobile temple. And he goes down lower in verse 27, talking about a hundred talents of silver were cast, uh, the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the veil and the hundred sockets of the hundred talents, a talent for a socket. And thousands, so you get a little bit of idea, idea for how much materials are in this and what size they are, but this is really not a blueprint. This would have to be passed down from individual to individual. And since they don't even understand what it was all about, that it was a system of social welfare, they think it was just these mindless rituals, then I doubt they have the actual measurements figured. But the way the guys figured it out to begin with is God inspired them. And that's what, to even interpret this, you're going to need the inspiration of God. So, We finally get down in the sockets of the court roundabout and the sockets of the court gate and all the pins of the tabernacle and all the pins of the course roundabout. And so this is what they're creating. They're they're creating this structure, but this structure is a symbol of, of a system that is absolutely essential to understanding how the kingdom of God, and you, within the kingdom of God, functions. So if we go on to Exodus 39, uh, blue, purple, and scarlet, I start off talking about that. I've only got notes on blue, take you to a page on blue. 
but we can do purple. I, I've looked at the purple and the scarlet, and I see the patterns developing there. But I'm just not led at this time to go through every single one of these things. I mean, it's mentioned quite a few times in here. There of the gold down in verse 5, blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine. They repeat that over and over again in verse 3. The blue and in the purple and in the scarlet and in the fine linen. Uh, cunning works. So all this, and of course they're talking about the holy garments. And of course I, I mentioned this morning that the garments, same same word that we translate into garments here. There are other words that could be translated into garments, but the ones that were translated here could also mean treachery. Now why would you name you say, you're, we're, are we putting on treachery <laughs> on the priest? Uh, no. No. But it is possible to turn into treachery if you misconstrue the purpose and role of the priesthood in magnifying the nation as a nation. Because the the priests are not supposed to be putting themselves up on a pedestal. They are not supposed to be enriching themselves. If you had hundreds of thousands of people all contributing upwards, if they just did the 10%, uh, people think that that means tithing, which doesn't actually mean 10%. It's a tenth of the congregation of 10. You know, everybody gives their share according to the services that they would like to receive but they also give it according to the services that they can be to others. So that by giving their tithing, they're laying down a portion of their life every day. If they tithe every day, every week, they're laying down a portion of their life, life daily so that others may do well in hope they're casting their bread upon the water and hope that it comes back to them. There's a hundred ways in which the same principle is repeated over and over again. But everybody thinks, well, no, I just go to church and I accept Jesus or I accept Moses. If I need anything, I can go to, you know, uh, Obama and Biden and Trump and whoever, you know, whoever they hire. And they will give me food stamps and they will give me Social Security and they will give me Medicare and they will give me Medicaid. And if I ask them, so where do you think they got the money to do that? Well, I, I, I don't know. Or they say, I paid in. I have a right. So, anyway, it goes on, verse 25, and they made bells of pure gold. But the bells between the pomegranates upon the hem of the robe, round about between the pomegranates. And the bell and a pomegranate, and a bell and a pomegranate, round about the hem of the robe, to minister in. And the Lord commanded Moses, and they made coats of fine linen and woven work of Aaron and his sons. And a miter of fine linen, a miter of fine linen, a miter of linen, a miter, isn't that those, you know, those big like sticks with a kind of a ball on the end or a crown on the end that you can hit people on the head with? <laughs> but no, it's a mitre of fine linen. I think we need to look at these words bit by bit. But I haven't got any notes on the, this page. I got them other places. But I didn't put them here. Because I want you to look at it yourselves. 
So, and and they, not only a miter of fine linen, and a goodly bonnet of fine linen, and linen breeches of fine twined linen, and a girdle of fine twined linen, and blue and purple and scarlet of needlework. So again, there's that blue, purple, and scarlet. What are they talking about? <laughs> what are they trying to tell us? In verse 30, he goes and says, And they made plate of holy crown of pure gold and wrote upon it a writing like the engraving of a signet. Holiness to the Lord. Holiness to the Lord. Now, we can look at the letters of that later. Uh, I'm only going to go here a little bit longer. Because, I mean, there's actually 43 verses in this particular chapter. So, what is it all about? What do they talk about? Clothes of the service to do the service of the holy place and the holy garments. Is that the holy treachery? No. The holy garments of Aaron, the priest and his son's garments and his son's garments to minister in the priesthood office. But what does the priesthood do? Well, the wave offering. Because you need that support to keep the system going. And the golden altar and the anointing oil and the sweet incense. Sweet incense again, peace offering incense, the voluntary incense. And the hanging of the tabernacle doors and the brazen altars and the great brass, his staves and all his vessels and the laver and his foot. Hanging of the corpse. Now that word foot should add. There's more to that. It, it's an enigmatic statement. But I'm not, I'm not going to reveal all this in these. Uh, Jordan Peterson and them, they didn't really go through all this. They didn't really understand it. I should, I can put a few more links into this page and I'll do that, like breaches, so that you can go to our article on breaches and find out what that is all about. Uh, because, you were, the people were to sow the breaches of their priests. They, they were to sow them for the, the underwear of their priests. And like I said, it has nothing to do with underwear. It's, it's not about, now, there might have been people who actually made linen underwear for them, but remember they were to not go up by steps so that you see their nakedness and they were, then they also said, but you need to sew these breeches. Well, they're not going up by steps, so how would you be seeing their nakedness? But they had to make this fine linen to, to keep you from seeing their nakedness. And of course the word nakedness has to do with authority. If you, if you're naked, that means you don't have authority. Well, how did the Levites get authority to be your minister? Did the Pope send them down to your parish and say, you know, or the bishop send that Levite there? This is the Levite you're getting for your parish because he's assigned to this parish from me from the top down. No. No, you know that you're not in the church established by Christ if that's the way they're doing it. Because it's assigned from the bottom up. And you're at the bottom because it's a hierarchy of service. So you have to empower your minister to be your minister. He doesn't have the power to do it unless you say he can minister to your family. And and part of the way that you say that is that you you contribute to him. And then he he's supposed to be tying you together with all the other ministers in the network. 
of the nation. So, this is what the breaches are about. And I pick that particular thing to go into, just like leaven. If you don't understand leaven, if you think it's about yeast, you missed it. If you think the red heifer is about a red calf or a cow or a young cow, you missed it. If you think altars of clay and stone are about piles of rocks and dirt, you missed it. You haven't got it. And breaches isn't about underwear. It's about a covering so that your ministers are not naked. And, you know, if you go back, I mean, we have hundreds and hundreds of audios that will help you get through all this and understand it if this is the first recording you've heard. But, and, uh, you know, I can actually, well, I actually have gone and put links in, you know, because we have an article on steps. They're not supposed to go up by steps. Jordan Peterson and his crowd missed that whole thing. They have not a clue why you don't go up by steps. They don't have a clue as to why you have unhewn stones. And But we're going to keep explaining this and hopefully we'll make some videos and then you can share them around with other people. And then if they say, well, wait a minute, I've never heard this because the video is only going to be so long, we'll have recordings on a lot of these pages so that you can go and find out. Let's see, on the breaches page, did I end up putting a recording? I think I have a recording on the breaches so, and I just haven't put it up. Too many things to do in a day. So, anyway, if we continue through this um, 30, uh, let's see, we were in 39, and we were going down there. And, and again, it's a lot, you know, like, what are the pomegranates? What's the bells are a pomegranate? Why are bells a pomegranate? So, what is the word pomegranate? All this is to explain something about the priests and how they operate. It does say, and a covering of ram skin dyed red, and a covering of badger skins, again, we know what that is now, and a veil of the covering. So, that's just, if you go down to 32. Thus was all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation finished, and the children of Israel did according to all the Lord commanded Moses, so did they. And they brought a tabernacle unto Moses, the tent, and all his furniture, his tashes, his boards, his bars, his pillars, and his sockets, and the coverings of ram skin, etc. The Ark of the Testimony, because remember this is the Ark of the Testimony, this is the Tabernacle of the Testimony. So in the construction of these things, they're actually testifying something in a very symbolic language that you would have to be inspired by God to really understand. And don't focus all your time on trying to understand it. Focus on trying to do what Christ said, to love your neighbor as yourself, to come together, not forsake the coming together, to become the tabernacle of God yourself, the part of that tabernacle. Maybe even become one of the stones of the altar. So, get your head out of the metaphor and into the practicality of the gospel of the kingdom. So, 
and the golden altars and the anointing oils and the sweet incense, the voluntary incense and the hanging of the tabernacle doors and the brazen altars and the gates of brass and his staves and all his vessels and the laver and his foot. Why was John the Baptist on the Jordan River? John the Baptist was on the Jordan River because the laver at the stone temple of Herod was polluted. The stone temple of Herod was polluted. It was no longer the temple of God. Now, the full wrath of that reality was yet to come. But it would definitely come. And and we would see it when Jerusalem is destroyed and the people are dispersed, etc. So, that's just a reality. It was coming and it came bits and pieces. But we know that at one point there was no going back. And it's going to be the same with us. And you don't want to wait till the last minute. The tent of the congregation and the altar, and shall put water therein. That's for the laver to be at the tent of the congregation. But remember, at one point here, the people were worshiping from the door of their own tents. And the laver is symbolic of washing up your own heart, mind, and soul. You can only do that if you gather together with others. And so that's really what you have to do. So go to preparing you. Dot com. Uh, look for the network links. Join the network. Uh, find people in your local geographical area. Link up with them, even if you only have meetings on the phone for now. Spread the news that there is a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. But the people have to come together and be the change they want to see. Stop waiting for QAnon. Stop waiting for Trump. Stop waiting for the second coming or whatever it is you think and start becoming a doer of the word and until then all I can say is peace upon your house and may God be with you God bless You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.